listening to a podcast from The National. Violence has become such a constant in Afghanistan that an end to war has long seemed unlikely. From the Mujahideen's battle against the Soviets in the 1980s to the Taliban's rise and fall and the more recent attacks we have seen from both the Taliban and ISIS, conflict has dominated the country. But could that, finally, be about to change? This past week saw the Taliban's first ceasefire. It only lasted three days, but it heralded extraordinary scenes in Kabul, with Taliban fighters and some government forces embracing one another. Could peace be on the horizon? I'm Arthur McMillan, foreign editor of The National. This is Beyond the Headlines, and today we look at Afghanistan. Richie Kumar is the National's correspondent in Kabul, where she joined us on the phone. I asked her if the past few days have raised the chances of Afghanistan's conflict coming to an end. I do feel they have. Uh, things have changed drastically in the last few weeks. Um, um, in fact, the last couple of months since the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, since he announced the first peace offer, which was unlike any other before, it was a major step forward on part of the government to express that they wanted to stop eating and that they wanted to talk with the Taliban. The ball was in Taliban's court and, 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 and the onus was then up to them to to move forward if if they wanted something more concrete. Uh, however, it, after the first attempt in February, uh, it seemed like things wouldn't, that the Taliban wouldn't make uh, take the initiative and make any moves uh, towards the peace process because they were reluctant to talk to the Afghan government. But the last few weeks were very significant um, in, in the sense that um, the Taliban actually responded to the Afghan government's call for a ceasefire. Um, they've, they've never done that before. And uh, for a brief period, which was only three days, as opposed to the government announcing it for now for nearly two weeks, uh, for three days the Taliban gave up or put down their arms. Um, they interacted with the civilians. They interacted with uh, uh, Afghan officials. They interacted with security forces. They even interacted with a lot of politicians. That was symbolic or that was actually uh, very um, telling of the fact that the Taliban were at every level interested in ending the conflict. Uh, there were some signs that they they wanted to come to the negotiation table. Uh, of course, when the peace uh, when the ceasefire ended, they again reiterated the fact that they would rather be talking to the U.S. than to the Afghan government. But despite saying that, despite making that statement at the end of the ceasefire, the fact remains that during the ceasefire they did talk to the government government officials and security forces. This this says that they are not against dialogue with with the Afghan government it's just that they are probably not um, the you know their leadership and their fighters are probably not on the same page about how to approach peace what do you think contributed to that change of approach from the Taliban um it's probably the the overall sentiment that's been building up in Afghanistan um, a lot of it has to um, a lot of credit for this has to be given to the government, who has taken many initiatives, you know, over the past few years, and especially over the last few months, to um, 
you know, to keep coming back with peace proposals, to keep coming back with new offers and, you know, to the Taliban despite their rejection. Like even when uh, the parliamentary elections were announced this year, uh, the president approached um, or at least um you know, put out a statement calling for Taliban to participate in the elections. Although, if they were to participate, it would be a far more uh, complicated process because it wouldn't be as simple as, you know, to them to give up their weapons and, and stand for elections. But he did. That sort of created an atmosphere all over Afghanistan that, you know, that the time has come. Any series of events or any war or conflict or political, there is always a tipping point. And I feel like in the last two years, that at least the two years that I've been here, I feel like now is probably that tipping point for Afghans. Because in the last few years, like I, I came to Afghanistan in 2014, right after the election. And since then, since 2014, the last one year has been the worst in terms of conflict, in terms of civilian casualties, in terms of, you know, where the conflict happens. For a while, you could, you know, Kabul seems like a bubble where you could be relatively safer. You could relatively, you know, do things in a normal way, but it, it no longer feels like that. And I feel like that and a lot of other things, because the conflict has impacted business, the conflict has impacted international aid, Uh, the conflict has, you know, affected jobs and it has affected migration. And I think all that together, put together, has amounted to a tipping point where people in general want the two groups, the Afghan government and the Taliban, to talk. And I feel that pressure is there, that pressure, that pressure is there in, in the district levels, in, in the provinces, not just in Kabul. And um, the Taliban, you know, their insurgency, there are, there are a couple of things that, you know, um, help the insurgency stay rooted in Afghanistan. And one of them is, of course, the people themselves, you know, not, not that the people support them, but, you know, that they are able to intimidate the people. And I feel like this is reaching a point where they're not able to do that. The Afghan capital, Kabul, was once viewed as the safest zone in Afghanistan, but the past six months have seen an upsurge in attacks there. What is the atmosphere like in Kabul now? The last three days have been, or the last week in itself has been um, a little bit exciting for, for Afghans in all big cities, especially Kabul, because the last few days actually saw a change in dynamics of how the Afghan civilians looked at the Taliban and how Taliban looked at the civilians. Um In all major cities, and including Kabul, the Taliban fighters took the opportunity of the ceasefire to come into the city uh, to celebrate Eid, to meet with the civilians, to meet with them, with, with you know, Afghan forces and commanders and politicians. Uh, these meetings basically allowed both sides to look at each other differently. It allowed the Taliban to see how Afghans, the, the, the Afghans that they are fighting, are not, at least it allowed the fighters to see that the, how the Afghans that they are fighting are not their enemies, how the civilian casualties that they cause are actual people with families, with children, with jobs and with, you know, um, with personalities. And I think that was very, very significant. It was, it was also very unusual for, for many people to see Taliban back, you know, on their streets. They were in their cars and they were in their trucks and you know they were they were waving their flags alongside uh, alongside afghan flags so you know you had you had these these convoys of taliban fighters entering into major cities with their flags and with the afghan flags 
and it was very emotionally charged environment where people were very excited because it 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 was more than just hope they were actually seeing what these could look like and i know a lot of people you know they hugged the taliban they were they cried the taliban you know responded you know in in, in the same manner and it was there was so much brotherhood for the first time they got to see what the a lot of afghan civilians got to see who the taliban are they spoke to them in the same languages i had the opportunity to speak to a couple of fighters who you know and and we all happened to ask the same kind of questions that why are you still fighting and they were all at least everyone that i spoke to everyone that i know who spoke to taliban there was a whole sentiment that we are tired of fighting we don't want to fight anymore uh, the afghan forces are tired of fighting the exhaustion of of you know years of conflict was very evident and all of that basically gave has created this environment which is still there you know because now it's like an open truth that nobody really wants to fight and and all of that has created this environment of hope everywhere you go in kabul and all social circles this is what everyone is talking about right now about how that this basically means that there is hope and there is it's it's not just a possibility it it it, it could turn into something real Another thing is that a lot of people are now hoping that since the Taliban had the opportunity to see the civilians and the forces firsthand that they would be reluctant to go back to fighting. Um although that's not been entirely true because the minute the ceasefire was called off the Taliban did attack several checkposts around the country there were you know some amount of fighting that that's been going on in in the provinces people are still hopeful like the hope is like it's been renewed and it's 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 alive that there is a possibility that there could be some form of negotiation some form of compromise made with the Taliban that could eventually lead to um the end of fighting with at least one major group of insurgency that's quite a change from even a couple of months ago when there was one particularly bad attack in which many journalists were killed among those killed now you were you were around in kabul that day can you just recall how you were affected by that point the the, the attack in which a lot of journalists were killed by that point things had gotten very um intense in in kabul especially um the fighting seems to have seemed to have come you know into the urban areas and it was um there were a lot of big attacks between um you know uh, january uh, the beginning of the year and uh, this attack um where where the journalists were killed um so it was uh, it was already an environment of fear and and dread in just you know being in stepping out um onto the on the roads and the streets of kabul so when something like this happened it was a big shock to the community the, to the to the journal the press community in afghanistan but it was also it was also a you know symbolic of the fact that um, there were no rules anymore to the war not that there were any rules before but now at this point there were no rules to this conflict like anybody was a target and and there was no no place to stay there's a very interesting thing that i saw um there is a group on facebook for security alerts it's a crowdsourced group a lot of people post uh, you know it's it's not it's managed by the public and a lot of people post security incidences that they hear of in their areas and it really helps in terms of you know because um it, it, it people people post their needs and you know, it's it's instant like you, you it's instant information to the security situation in the city and someone actually posted like you know there was a very frustrated long post and someone said that what which place would is safe in kabul and another person replied to that um, the grave because that was literally 
that was like probably the lowest point. Everybody, you know, civilians no longer felt safe. Businesses no longer felt safe. Journalists did not feel, feel safe. The aid workers no longer felt safe. The, you know, it was, it was a very, um, personally, I felt that those few days or those few weeks were, were, was like a low point. And yeah, I mean, it seems, and it was largely because of, um, you know, the emergence of ISIS, the Islamic State in, in Afghanistan. And it's also because of the ISIS insurgency has no direction. They do not have any demands. They do not, unlike the Taliban, they do not have any goals that they want to achieve except destabilizing urban centers. And, and they've solely only targeted urban centers so far. And that's all they're doing. They, they don't have any demands. They don't have any, uh, you know, will to take over any province or any district. And and there is it, it just seems very mindless. They, they don't seem to have a strategy. And their violence seems very mindless. And I think the fear of that is also something uh, that has um, uh, put pressure on, on the government or on, on the agencies, international forces as well, to do something about the Taliban insurgency. In the recent violence in Afghanistan, how large a role has ISIS played? The Taliban is still one of the largest insurgencies in Afghanistan. It is still um, the strongest uh, hurdle for, towards peace in Afghanistan. It's one of uh, the Afghan government and the international forces, one of their uh, biggest uh, problems and, you know, an, an issue that they need to address. And uh, and, and and that's what they have been focusing their um energies and resources towards, towards, um, you know, controlling the Taliban, or at least uh, reducing Taliban insurgency and bringing them, uh, pressuring them to come onto the negotiation table. In this whole dynamic, however, the last few years, ISIS has suddenly emerged as a player that's basically causing a lot of uh, civilian casualties, is causing a lot of instability. And, but however, there is no channel or there is no understanding as to uh, why they've decided to group here and why, what do they, you know, what did, what is their end goal? Um, apart from, of course, the, the one about, you know, setting up the Khorasan state and um, they do not seem to make any demands. They do not seem to be taking over provinces. They do not seem to have any direction in terms of their attacks. Um, a lot of the times that we've seen the last few months, the attacks that have happened, uh, the ones, the attacks that, that take place on civilian civilian areas are claimed by ISIS. On uh, the attacks that are that take place on military or government forces are claimed by Taliban. I have I actually had spoke I've spoken to a few sources within the Afghan government who believe that both the attacks, uh, which are claimed by Taliban and which are claimed by ISIS, are actually conducted by the Haqqani network, and it's some kind of an outsourcing deal where the Haqqani network executes the attack and depending on where the attack was conducted, either ISIS or Taliban claim it. There's not much proof to back that theory up, but that's also a popular theory that, you know, a lot of government officials, um, a lot of ex-government officials are also publicly talking about. Um, so yeah, the Taliban and ISIS may, may seem to be at par when it comes to attacking the Afghans, but they do seem to... Like the Taliban would not will stay away from any attacks that claim civilian casualties. They will not. Uh, they will not claim it. And the ISIS um, will be first 
to claim such an attack where the civilians have been killed, where, you know, civilians who they think are infidels, uh, the minority uh, groups have been killed, so ISIS will claim those kind of attacks. The only thing is that even though they claim these attacks and even though they are conducting them with increasing frequency and it's getting harder to understand why they would want to target, like what, what would they want to achieve through certain attacks that they do, it is very evident that they are present. They are making their presence felt and that they are a problem, that they are a problem in, in the possibility that there could be stability. Because even if you consider that, yes, um, the Taliban do in the future do come on, on the negotiating table and some kind of a deal is, is struck and, and the Taliban decides to, you know, uh, agree to an indefinite ceasefire, there is still ISIS that, that the Afghan public need to, you know, our Afghan public are concerned about because ISIS will still continue conducting these attacks. So they are a major problem and they are proving to be more and more of a, uh, a nuisance to peace, uh, to the peace process. But so far, I haven't heard of any clear strategy from the government in terms of policy as to how they plan to uh, negate this, uh, this rise of ISIS. Um, the U.S. government, though, is... It does seem to um, very often target uh, ISIS, um, you know, hotspots around the provinces. However, it seems like it seems too far, too few and too far removed. It's also difficult to um, determine where the leadership of ISIS is currently, whether it's within the country or whether it's outside the country. So it's it's kind of a problem. It's kind of a big problem for the Afghan government and the international forces, and it's. If not addressed really quickly and strategically, it might lead to something uh, that could affect the peace process with Taliban too. When you talked about the outsourcing of the attacks in the Haqqani network, um, were you meaning that the Haqqani network were basically carrying out the attacks for ISIS? Yes. Yeah. That is what I've been told from some of the sources that a lot of time when ISIS claims the attack and I actually reach out to the sources to ask them if, 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 uh, if that's true, if they've, they've had intelligence about it. And they usually say, or pretty much every time, that it's not ISIS, it's Haqqani Network. It's the Haqqani Network who executed the attack. Thanks to Ruchi Kumar. Follow her on Twitter at Ruchi Kumar and follow our continued coverage of the Afghanistan conflict on our website thenational.ae. Thanks also to Kevin Jeffers for producing. Follow Beyond the Headlines and the rest of our shows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to listen. I'm Arthur McMillan for The National. Join us again soon.